right, well, let me encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 10 in your own Bibles and follow along. Uh, we're going to be looking at the section that's contained in verses 17 through 20 this morning, but because of the depth and complexity of it, we're going to break that up into two parts. I know it's just a few verses, but hopefully you'll see what I mean. Um, and our focus is going to be primarily on verses 17 and 18 this morning. Uh, remember, we actually began this broader section, um, I think three or four weeks ago now, back in verse 1, and it began with Jesus, remember, sending out the 70 to proclaim the kingdom of God um, and, and to bear witness to that proclamation with those attesting signs and wonders, specifically mentioned there, the gift of healing, etc., um, well, what's happening in verse 17 is the narrative is picking back up with those folks returning from that mission and giving a report to Jesus who had sent them upon it. So I'm going to jump on in for sake of time. This might be a little long. I apologize if it is. I'll try to not belabor it more than is necessary. Um, so we're, we're not going to reread the whole section because of that. We're going to just begin reading in verse 17. Then after we pray, I'll highlight a couple of verses just to remind us of the context. So hopefully that'll save us some time. So Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And let me remind you as always that this is the word of God. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we thank you for your holy word. Um, we thank you for the light that it gives us, uh, for the knowledge of you and your ways and your will, uh, for the purpose and direction it gives to our lives, for the meaning, uh, for the substance that it provides for us. Lord, we praise you for all those things. Uh, and we ask for your help this morning, as always, to understand this rightly. Um, we ask for uh, guidance from your spirit. I pray that you'd protect us from error and lead us in truth. And as always, that um, you would um, condition our hearts that they may all respond uh, to what we read here appropriately. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so look back at verse 1 briefly. Luke had told us this, remember, that after this the Lord had appointed 72 others. Your translation may say 70. If, if that brings up questions for you, you can talk to me afterwards. But we do have a sermon on Sermon Audio that dealt with that in this series. After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Then you can scan the verses that follow. Remember, Jesus had given... Uh, um, those warnings to them about the inherent difficulties of the task that he was sending them out into. And he'd given them these logistical instructions that didn't involve any preparation, really. 
um, but how they were to go about it. And then he told them this in verse 9. Look at it. Heal the sick, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, I would submit to you that if we hadn't already read verse 17, as we did at the beginning, um, and all we'd read was the verses up to verse 16, that we, we would be surprised that the 70 return responding like they are. Right? Remember uh, what he had told them, kind of in summary, in verse 3, he says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, how's that going to end? Almost every time, right? The, 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 the wolves are going to conquer, consume, and kill the lambs. Almost every time. Occasionally they might escape. It never goes the other way, right? The lambs never be- become the predators, right? So it's kind of, I think then it's, it's meant to surprise us in a sense what we see in verse 17. Look at it with me. That the 72 return with joy, Right? They return excited and elated. They're not at all forlorn or depressed, downcast. Right? I think the obvious reason for that is, is they've been unexpectedly victorious. They probably, with all those warnings given, they probably didn't expect this measure of success and victory that they've, that they've experienced. Look at what they say to Jesus back in verse 17. Notice the address. Lord. He's the master. He's the one who's commissioned them. They're serving His purposes. That's very important to understand this passage. Lord, even the demons are subject to us. Now, from what I read from commentators and dictionaries and such, that word subject there is a military term. right? It, it, it conveys the idea that, that the person is subordinate to or of a lower rank than another person. Okay? We don't want to read into that too deeply, but all throughout this, we're going to see that militaristic sort of motif. So it's important that we introduce it here and recognize it here. Right? They're, they're saying something essentially to the effect of the very powers and forces and hordes of hell are subject to our commands. Okay? Don't overlook that. And remember again, that he had sent them out with multiple reminders of their weakness. Right? Multiple reminders of their vulnerability. Remember, they had made preparation. They didn't have any extra food. They didn't have any extra money. They didn't have any extra clothes. And he told them that you're going to be dependent on the people whose towns and villages and homes that you enter into. See, extremely weak Extremely vulnerable, naturally positioned, uh, speaking, I mean, uh, logistically speaking. And think about this. As far as we know, he never told them that they would be exercising demons, right? He had, he had told the twelve that, remember back at the beginning of chapter 9, that they would be doing that. But he hadn't specifically said that to the 70 here, at least as far as the scripture tells us. That's not recorded. Right, So I'm imagining that when they're going about preaching that they're pretty surprised to find that these armies of hell, if you will, these forces of darkness, these soldiers of Satan, they're fleeing before them. Now, this is really basic, okay? but I want to argue from silence here. Why are these demons fleeing from them? Now, you know the right answer. 
Okay? But pointing out the wrong answer may help us. Okay? Are they fleeing from them because they're inherently fearful of them? No, they're not. Okay? They are no match. Okay? Furthermore, the material world can't reach into the physical world without divine assist or spiritual world. You know what I'm saying. I don't want to overly separate those two. Don't call me Gnostic after church, okay? Paul wasn't a Gnostic. He said stuff like that. Um, as, do, they, do they recognize some sort of intellectual or spiritual superiority of the 70 over themselves, these demons? They don't, okay? They don't. Are these demons just really, or are these uh, 70, are they just really conditioned men who've, who, who, who have strong bodies and, and, and good strategies? And, no, Robbie's already saying his head, no, thank you. Absolutely not, okay? There's one reason to their success, one reason to their conquest, and there's only one reason. What is it? Yes, look at the end of verse 17. Hopefully my belaboring it drives the point home. Lord, even the demons are subject to us. Why? Because we're here in your name. Amen. Brethren, that does not mean just saying the name. Okay, Anybody can say, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm not against that. I say it when I pray. It's more than that. Okay, It's to re represent Him, to be a part of Him, to be in union with Him, and to be doing His work. Okay? So that's very important. See, the, the demons are bowing the knee to them simply because they're Christ's men, not because of anything, any attribute or virtue or accomplishments of these men in, in and of themselves. See, Christ is in every way inherently in and of himself superior to these demons. These men are his emissaries, right? These are men have been sent out under his authority. And even though they're, they're going to suffer, they're going to suffer setback and persecution and hardship. We looked at that a lot in the previous weeks. Ultimately, what he sent them out to do, gather in the grain that's his, not the tares, the grain that's his, they will be successful in it simply because they're doing his work. And he's the sovereign of the universe. All right. Look at verse 18. I'm trying to move as quickly as I can. Buckle up here, as someone I think said earlier. Um, look at the way Jesus responds to them. He says, oh, jumped ahead. He said to them, so remember what they said. Keep in context. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Okay? He says this in response. He said to them, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So think about it. The, the previous statement was recognizing the, the, the subjugation, that word, that military word, of the demons, those assumedly servants of Satan, to the 70 whom we know to be the servants of Christ. So verse 18 then, in a sense, shifts that focus away from the relationship between ser the two servants, groups of servants, to the relationship between the two masters of those servants, right? And in, a, in its most basic sense, he's explaining to them that, that they were able to defeat those demons, those soldiers of darkness, um, because of the nature of the relationship between Christ and Satan. Understand that. So, okay. Now, 
Let me say here, and we're going to dive a lot deeper into that hopefully. I'm going to say up front, I could be wrong about the position I take on this. If you disagree with me, it won't hurt my feelings. Okay? This is a deep, profound verse, subject that it deals with. Um, but there is a lot of scripture, a lot that we can cross-reference, a lot to consider that I think is going to help us come uh, to a position. But look at the text again. Before we examine a litany of cross-references and a few commentaries, uh, I want us to see what the verse tells us in and of itself. We must always start there. Amen? Okay. Hopefully you can amen that. Um, Notice, first of all, the way Satan's fall from heaven there is described. Look at it again. He said to them, I saw Satan fall, how? Like lightning. Okay, that's, that's from heaven. Okay, that's quick. That's powerful, if you will. And is there any kind, is, is a struggle here being conveyed? No, right? No, thank you. <laughs> no, right? This is, this is something that's, it's a decisive overthrow, right? So just bear that in mind. It, it rules out possibilities, I think. Notice also the tense of the first verb there. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In the English, we would say, what's the tense of that verb? Past tense. Thank you. Uh, a lot of other translations take the same thing. I think the King James says, I beheld. The, the Christian Standard Bible says, I watched. Uh, you can survey yours. Um, but these translations are a little misleading. Um, and, and that's because the, the verb here, and I don't, I, don't, I don't ever want to bog you down with Greek grammar and stuff like that. It's very important here. It's very important here. We would assume from reading that in the English, if, if we had a knowledge of sort of Greek verbal structures, that the verb there was in the Greek aorist tense, right? The, the Greek aorist is a completed action, not necessarily past, but usually, but it's a completed action. It has very defined parameters, right? It started, it ended, we know that. The, the, the thing about the verb here is that it's actually in the Greek imperfect tense. Now, Bill Mount says, that the Greek imperfect tense is a continue or connotes a continuous action usually occurring in the past. Now that's a very basic definition. He didn't say that about this verbal form. That's just generally speaking. But the idea is that when you see the Greek imperfect tense, it's not resigned necessarily to an event that began and ended in a moment of time. Right? It certainly has a beginning point, but its conclusion, right, its ending, is just indefinite. It's n- the, the, the parameters of that are just not defined. They're not stated one way or another. See how it's hard to translate some, from one language to another and get all these nuances? Right? But they do a masterful job, these translators, I believe. I'm very cornbread. But my, from what little I can see, they do a masterful job. You should have great confidence in them. I think the NAS um, and its child, the LSB, not to say that derogatory, they're great translations, I love them both, Um, they translate it in a way that sort of helps us to understand the connotation of the original. And he said to them, look at the difference, not I saw, but I was watching. See the nuanced difference there? I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And even that word fall there 
is a participle, which, which you could say something, it's awkward, but I, I, I was watching Satan falling, or I was watching Satan as he was falling from heaven, something like that. So see how the, the definitiveness of the completion is just really, really obscured by the grammar there, right? It's not connoting that. So I think then from those things, the appropriate connotation is, is that this is something that's probably occurring in the past, at least his beholding of it, but may very well be ongoing. And I'll qualify that in a minute. Look at this summary of popular interpretations from the Faith Life Study Bible. I think it'll save us time just to read them here. Uh, Jesus could be referencing, they say, a vision he has had of the future and Satan's final defeat at the return of Christ. In other words, it's past, but he's saying, I had the vision in the past, right? And I was seeing the final defeat of Satan. It, oh, sorry. It may also be that Jesus is referencing an event that has itself occurred in the past. This is the one most people go to, such as Satan's actual fall from God's presence when he rebelled. That prehistoric fall. Or they say some defeat, it could be referring to some defeat of Satan that occurred during Jesus' lifetime. Okay? Now I'm, I would add a, a fourth option to that that's qualified, very nuanced. I know you guys love that word, but we'll talk about that later. Um, now think about what, if, what would the possibilities be if, if we're taking this to refer to an event that occurred in the past. Okay? I think there are two, basically, the, what's called the prehistoric fall of Satan. Prehistoric meaning before men kept records, not meaning there's a world before Genesis 1 that Satan destroyed. I'm, get that out of your head. I'm not referring to that. I, I'm just saying before the fall of man, a fall of Satan. And or, not and or, it could be referring to a defeat of Satan that came after the fall of man, but prior to the, the time chronologically of verse 18. We'll talk about those. But first, let's consider the, the, the idea of the prehistoric fall of Satan. I think it's the most prominent idea here, or viewpoint here. Um, now, do we know that a prehistoric fall of Satan occurred? Yes, God created everything good, and yet Satan shows up in the garden slandering God, tempting God's image bearers to disobey him, right? Clearly a fall has occurred. Isaiah 14, um, many think that Isaiah 14 describes this prehistoric fall. We actually read this last week. I'm going to read over it again to refresh your memory. I won't say a lot, but we will interact with it. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? And Pastor Scott told me this last week that that's where the name Lucifer comes from, from the Hebrew there. Uh, how are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, this is where it really sounds angelic and otherworldly, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And then look at the language. Bringing him down. But you are brought down to Sheol. Right? To the far reaches of the pit. So not only down to the low place, 
down to the depths of the deeps, right to the place of the dead. Now, the problem with this understanding to me is twofold. The first is the, the, the text itself that we just read in verse 4 addresses itself specifically to an earthly king, to the king of Babylon. Now, it's possible that, that um, God, in, in revealing this, was, was, was pulling on uh, or, or employing ideas and understandings that the Jews had about the fall of Satan and making a parallel, an analogy to that fall of Satan. But we just don't know that conclusively. Um, but there's a bigger problem that with, with applying that, uh, the understanding of that event, the prehistoric fall of Satan, to our text in verse 18. I'm going to show it to you. Uh, think about what we read in Job chapter 1 in verse 6 and 7. There was a day when the sons of God, they're referring to angels, it doesn't always do so, be careful with that. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Where is Yahweh enthroned? Heaven, <laughs> thank you. Yes, He's enthroned in heaven. So these angels are coming to answer to their Creator. Right? They're coming to give an account of what they're doing. Who came with them to heaven? Satan. Okay, Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. So that's that imagery from Peter, right? He's, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay, we're going to talk about how he seeks them out and all that later. But guys, what's the problem with that already? Yeah, he's in heaven, and the language of verse 18 is like lightning, right? Like, that's decisive. That's quick and that's powerful. That doesn't connote the idea of, well, he just comes and he goes. Not that he comes and goes arbitrarily here. He comes and goes when God says come and go. But still, he has that access to God's ear. Right? He was coming to make accusations against Job. He was coming to try to indict Job, remember. Or he, in time, that's what he was doing there. So also, when you say, well, Job's almost prehistoric, and that may be true. It was written probably before Moses was alive, most people say. But think about this. We see the same kind of thing in the book of Zechariah, which was written like at the, almost the very end of the Old Testament era, just a few centuries before the coming of Christ. And we see there that the, the same slanderer here has that same kind of access to God, and he shows up there before God making similar indictments. I won't go into what this text means, but just see what it's telling us. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. By the way, Satan, you know what that means? The word, the name? Adversary, right? Accuser, that's right. See, it's, 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 a, it's a, almost a verbal cognate or a noun. I don't know how you say that. In other words, his name represents what he does. See, that's what he does. That's how he wages his warfare. That's how he opposes God and his kingdom. It's through that slander, through those accusations. Okay, So my thinking here is, that if, if Satan's able to come and go from heaven throughout this Old Testament era to whatever capacity, then verse 18 is most likely not 
referring to a prehistoric fall that, that, that's not quite so decisive. Let me, oh, I'm sorry, I messed up. Spoiled my own thunder there. But guys, think about this. That, that understanding ought to change the way we think about Revelation 12, at least some of us, certainly me in the past. Remember what Revelation 12, 7 and 8, and we're going to come back to this, but for now I want to just go ahead and put it out there to you so you can see how it, the tension is. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place. Look at that, no longer any place for them in heaven. Okay, Just bear that in mind for now. We'll come back to that if I have time. Let me just say right here. The reality is, is that the scripture just doesn't tell us much about the prehistoric fall of Satan. It simply doesn't. Not that it's clear. We know it happened. But the details doesn't tell us much about it. And I would just submit to you that it's better for us, to, rather than seeking out novelties, which can lead us into great error, it's better for us to trust the wisdom of God in revealing to us the things that we need to know, the things that are necessary for life and godliness, and leave the mysteries that He has not chosen to reveal, leave them up to Him, or, or leave that up to His discretion. Now, let's look at the second part of that. What about a past defeat of Satan that occurred after the fall of man? but prior to the cross or, or verse 18. Now, did that happen? Countless times, brethren. Every, every time Satan was poised to destroy the people of God right, at the Red Sea, in the, uh, the, the infanticide in Egypt, over and over with the Amalekites and the Philistines and the Canaanites, and every time that was poised, that's what you have happening. You have the Lord rising up and, and defending His people and dealing a, dealing a defeat in battle to, to Satan and his purposes. Now, since Jesus' incarnation, though, see, that's intensified. That's what, yeah, that's what, I, what I'm going to point out here. Remember this, that as soon as Jesus had begun His earthly ministry, probably two years ago now we looked at that, as soon as he begun his earthly ministry, immediately after his baptism, he faces off with this great accuser of men. Remember, out in the wilderness, Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this, this conflict, this, it's intentional. The Spirit of God is arranging this. Remember, how's the battle going to go? What's Satan's weapons? He's a slanderer. Okay? He's the accuser. His power over men is through one thing. What? Their sin. It's not physical. Fill in the blank. It's, the, it's through their sin. But see, now he meets out in the wilderness, much like Israel had failed to do, he meets a man whose righteousness exceeds that of Moses and Job exponentially and infinitely. Right? And they battle it out in the wilderness, if you will, through those temptations and Jesus' perseverance and faithfulness as a man. And in a sense, at the end of that, Satan is expelled. Right? Remember what Jesus said. He said to him, be gone. Right? Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, Jesus won that battle. Right? Clearly. Decisively. Right? Right? 
in an ultimate sort of sense. And now Satan knows this is important before we move forward. Satan now knows with experiential certainty that he has absolutely zero power over that man, over that image bearer of God, right? That's so important. In fact, he knows what's true. The opposite. <laughs> that man has power over him, right? He's just, he's just commanded him and he's forced to obey because the source of his strength does not exist in the, in the man Jesus. Now, remember this in principle. John says this. Explain, let's just understand more of how that works. 1 John 5, 19. John says, in contrast to the church, he says, we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. That's why. Because they're sinful, right? First John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, right? You can tell he's his. You can, they, they bear his mark. You understand? They bear his mark because they do his will. They do his bidding. Okay, don't fall out with me over that. The reason the Son of God appeared, this is a definitive statement, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What's his work? Understand? See the connections here. Now, as we go forward in the, in the gospel narratives, right? We see Jesus over and over again going to battle with these forces of darkness. And winning, right? Every single time. Even think of the demoniacs there in Gerasene. And the legions of demoniacs there. And it's... At his command, they're gone, right? Now, remember this passage from Luke chapter 11. Remember, Jesus had just cast out, this is a very important one. Jesus had just cast out another demon, okay? They can't deny his authority at this point, right? He just continues to do what no man on earth is able to do. But instead of recognizing that he can do this because he's God incarnate, God in human flesh, they blasphemously say, no, no, no. You're only able to do this because you're on their team. You cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Right? Jesus says, well, now think about what you're saying. A house divided against itself, A, can't stand. But then he says this. this, is, this is, these few verses are so important for our text. But... If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, look at the military language, then that means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yeah. See that? It's overtaking you like Pharaoh's armies on the hills of Israel. Okay? Except the Red Sea ain't going to part for them. Okay? Look at this, what he says, verse 21. When a strong man, that's Satan, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. What are Satan's goods? Sinners. Right? Okay? Those that he, those that he rules over. We'll talk about that in a minute. Jesus says, here's what's happening though. When one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, Militaristic language. He takes away his armor, the thing that makes him strong. He takes that away. 
And then he divides his spoil. He plunders him. The sin of man that strengthens him, he takes away and he plunders that what belongs to them. He claims that for himself. He takes them away as spoils of war, as his own possession. See, that's what's happening, brethren, every time we see this sort of thing in the New Testament. It's, it's, a, it's a battle and, and Christ is destroying the, the, the forces of Satan. See how it's ongoing? There's a point I'm trying to like it's the same motif, the same imagery goes on throughout the Gospels. Hang in there with me. Now, how does this tie back in then to verse 18? Hopefully I don't have to explain it but too much at this point, but think about this. Okay? What are the 70 doing? They're going out, verse 1. Remember, into every town, not just the Jewish towns, that's important. The 12 could only go to the Jewish towns. They're told to go into every town and village, Gentile, Samaritan, Jewish, all three, where Jesus was about to go, and they're harvesting souls for Christ. I think that was verse 4, something like that. Okay? The harvest is great. They're harvesting souls for Christ, indiscriminate of, of nationhood, ethnicity, language, fill in the blank, right? One could say from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. What's my point in that? Well, think about it. What was the Messiah told by the Lord to obtain? <laughs> Thank you. Psalm 2 8. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations plural. Not one nation, the nations plural, your heritage. I'll make not just the Middle East, but the ends of the earth your possession. So what's happening here with the 70? It's so important. See, Jesus was already beginning to claim that inheritance. Through that, through that mission of the 70, He was already beginning to claim the nations for Himself. He was already beginning to bring in that glorious harvest. Guys, this, this, this little part of Luke chapter 10 that we've been going through for three or four weeks, it is phenomenally important. It, I think it's so undervalued as I've studied through it, and I've done it all my life as well. Think about it. Jesus is on His way to the cross, right? We. That's how this began. He's on his way down to the cross. And he sends them out ahead of him. Now, is the victory that he's going to accomplish at the cross, is that certain? Is, is he going to bind the strong man and plunder his goods at the cross? Amen, right? Think about this. Satan's called elsewhere in Scripture the, the ruler or the god of this world. Right? Or the god of this age. Something like that. Guys, is that because he has geographic sovereignty over planet Earth? No, of course, no. No, that's not the point at all, right? It's because of the power that he wields over men because of their sin, right? The world being contrasted to, to the wheat of God. Think about, that's why Paul said this, and we're really familiar with it, but think about it in that context that of of our former selves, prior to our coming to Christ, Paul says, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. Doing what? Verse 2, Ephesians 2. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, etc. See, how how were we following after the prince of the power of the air? See, because we, that was the source of his strength over us. Our, our, our fallen affections. Our, our lusts of the flesh. right? The, 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 the desires that we had in our fallen hearts for sin. Guys, here's why that's important. Because that's how Satan kept the nations, plural, enslaved to his will. I've, I've told you this many times over. But for the most part, Prior to the cross, you had the light of the revelation of God and the worship of God in one little speck on the whole globe, in one little people group in the whole globe. Now, it expanded out. We, the Ninevites, others, potentially Nebuchadnezzar at one point. We don't know. It, but basically, it was there. And the nations, plural, of the world, they were kept in darkness. Right? Like this. Like Paul says, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, speaking even now, he says, look, if our gospel is veiled, if it's covered, if it's hidden, it's hidden to those who are perishing, not to the wheat of God. It's hidden to the tares. Okay, nobody can stop Christ from claiming his own. We need to understand that. But look, he says, in their case, here's why. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds, the thinking of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. See, that, that's, that's the cosmic spiritual reality that exists. But, okay, when it comes to those that constitute this messianic harvest of the nations, here's what happens. Jesus told Paul this. He says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. That they may turn from uh, the power of Satan, sin, to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, set apart by faith in me. Jesus speaking right there. Now, remember how this worked itself out. We look at this passage a lot. We have to look at it again. John 12, 31. Jesus said what? In lieu of the cross, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, who's that? Satan. Satan. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is such an important verse in the day in which we live. Next verse, verse 32. So we know what he's talking about. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, Talking about the cross, okay? Like this bronze serpent. He says, I'll draw not just the Jewish people, but what? All people to myself. Guys, I think the combination of these two verses and this idea, don't fall out with me here, is the proper way to understand Revelation chapter 20. Remember, think of how this parallels, okay? If you disagree with me on this, that's fine. I won't fall out with you. Don't fall out with me. But think about it. John sees this angel. Okay, He's coming down with, with a great chain. Here's what he does. He sees the dragon. Is Satan literally a dragon? 
No, okay, he's seeing symbols, right? He's seeing visions that are symbolizing realities. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent. Is he literally a snake? No, not literally, right? It's ethereal, metaphysical body. Okay, if that. Who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years? Now, this is where you might fall out with me, but just as all, everything else in that verse is not literal, but symbolic, I think this thousand years is symbolic for a really, really long time. Okay, You can talk to me after church if you want to know why, how I defend that elsewhere. I'll be glad to talk to you about it. I can't spend any more time on it now. But watch this, okay? Watch this. Verse 3. He bonds, he seizes that dragon with that great chain. Okay? And he, and, he, and he bonds him and he throws him down into the pit. Okay? This is John seeing him do that. And he shuts that pit up. And, and, he, and he seals the pit. Is the dragon getting out until the angel wants to let him out? Absolutely not. Now, why did he throw him in the pit? There's one reason. There's one, and we, we don't need to make more of it than what it says. He bound him so that he could no longer deceive the nations. Plural. What's the messianic inheritance? The nations. What's being beginning to be claimed? Already, just a few months short of the cross, the nations. What's been prevented from being claimed in all of human history up until this point of the cross, in large scale at least? The nations. See that? And he says, he won't... Yeah. And, and, and so he's not going to be able to prevent that until those thousand years were ended. We might talk about that, the, the verses that follow next week. For now, I desperately need to move on. Look at this commentary. Uh, this is from Cyril of Alexandria. He's like 1,500 years ago. Okay, This is why it's so telling. Before a lot of our eschatological thinking got convoluted with things. Cyril of Alexandria said this. Before the coming of the Savior, this is in commentary on our text, Luke 10, he possessed the world, meaning Satan. All was subject to him, and there was no one able to escape the trap of his overwhelming might. His strength is sin, right? He says everyone worshipped him. Does that mean they had the church of Satan? No, how did they worship Satan? <laughs> yeah, and every other religion that existed in the world ultimately worshipped Satan. That's why they're all on the same team, along with the professed atheists. Right? Everyone worshipped him. He had temples and altars for sacrifice everywhere and had an innumerable multitude of worshippers. He says, watch, I love this. Since the only begotten word of God came down from heaven, it's the incarnation, since Jesus became a man, he has fallen like lightning. Amen. See that? <laughs> Guys, I think this is what's happening in our text, right? The nations, they're already being claimed for the Messiah in lieu of the cross. It's that certain, right? And I think Jesus is actually interpreting what's happening with the 70. He's saying, in, here's what I saw when you were going out preaching the gospel and the demons were fleeing. Here's what I saw. Satan falling from heaven 
like lightning. I was watching that as you were going out and about doing that, and those kind of things were happening, right? I was, it's, it's ongoing, but it's decisive, right? It's certain, it's firm, and it's sure. See, the strong man's already being bound right there, and his house was already being plundered. And Jesus had already told them that before, this is what's going to happen. See, this subjugation of the demons by the 70, within that context of, of their work of harvest of the souls, that was, a, that was a, not case study, that was, that was proof, that was evidence that this is what was happening, right? A little foretaste of what was to come throughout the Great Commission, right? Jesus already seeing Satan fall like lightning. What does that mean about his accusatorial work over the people of God? Yeah, that's right. It means it's coming to an end, right? It means he, has, he doesn't have God's ear anymore. There's no place found for him in heaven to make accusation. Okay, think about that. Ooh. I have a really long commentary. <laughs> oh, y'all. I'm going to blame y'all if everybody's mad at me. <laughs> this is from I. Howard Marshall. Read him with caution if you do. He's a little too smart for his own good. But, um, right, like I would recognize that. But uh, <laughs> he's got some beautiful insight here. He says this. Uh, uh, the saying is related to a Jewish tradition. In Revelation 12, 7 to 10 and 13, Michael fights and overcomes the dragon, Satan in heaven, so that he's cast down to the earth where he pursues the woman, the collective people of God, who bore the male child. Okay, We we'll, may talk about that more next week. He says, behind the picture, here's why I caution you, lies the myth of the fall of Lucifer from heaven. And we need to understand, the word myth doesn't technically mean something that's false like Greek mythology. The word myth is just like an oral tradition or, or belief that's not necessarily codified, but that's used to explain certain realities. Okay, So it's not inherently true or false, and he's just speaking academically. And this is where you have to be careful with somebody so academic. Um, I, I took a double take on this, and, whoa, but then I just did some research and figured it out. Watch this. He says, in John 12, 31, the ruler of this world is cast out. He's to be overcome. We're going to read that in the benediction. He's to be bound and cast into the abyss so that he's no more, right? No more a threat, no more a restraint to the claiming of the messianic inheritance. Inheritance. He says, this evidence suggests that the mythological idea, again, uh, interpret that rightly, of the fall and defeat of Satan is here being utilized by Jesus to express symbolically the significance of the exorcism of demons. Okay, He says, the exorcisms are a sign of the defeat of Satan. He references Mark there. And he says, thus, the eschatological defeat of Satan is seen to take place where? in the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. Yes. Right? In other words, from that Matthew 4 point going forward, right. that where Jesus crushes Satan in, in, in the wilderness, right? Endures the temptation. <laughs> Excuse me. 
I got choked on my chewing gum, is faithful to God, right? Earns that righteousness for his people and all the way through to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the ongoing intercession and the great commission, right? The work of his people going out and proclaiming, uh, 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 not proclaiming, reclaiming, right? Plundering, taking the spoils of Satan for Christ. He says, that is the eschatological defeat of Satan. See, that's that ongoing yet decisive idea. Now, this is why I was like, with that commentary. I want to go back to Revelation, part of it. Um, chapter 12, because um, I think it's important for us to understand kind of where we are in the scope of this thing here. And again, we may, I really want to come back to uh, this next week, and I hope to do so. But for now, let's read just a few extra verses. Remember, we already read verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. My contention now being is this happened in the first century in the ministry of Christ. Okay, look, verse 9. And the great dragon, look at the language, was thrown down. Again, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Guys, that ain't Rome and that ain't Caesar. Okay? The text says this dragon is Satan. Okay? He was thrown down. Not that there aren't potentially implications there. There probably are. But this is, more, this is bigger than that. The, look at the way he's described. What was his work? The deceiver of the world. The deceiver of the whole world. Right? The one who blinded the minds of unbelievers, to keep, of Gentiles, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. When this battle happens, he's thrown down. Right? He's, made, he's rendered powerless over those that Christ is claiming. But he's thrown down to the earth. You understand that? He doesn't have the ear of God to make accusation anymore. You see that? He doesn't have that privilege anymore to go and make slanderous charges against God's elect. He's cast down to the earth. And His angels are thrown down with Him. Watch. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. Ask of me, and I'll give you the ends of the earth. Right? Now, the authority of His Christ has come. How do we know that? What, what's the expression of Christ's authority when He, when he makes the stand? The accuser of the brothers... The wheat that they were sent out to harvest, he's been thrown down. Right, The one who formerly accuses them day and night before God, bringing their sin to God's remembrance. We didn't plan this. Right? So unquote. Pointing it out. Pointing it out. Well, what about them? You have to condemn them. You have to condemn them. You have to condemn them. Why? Because they're sinful. And that's right. Except what? Jesus. 
Except Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. What is it, Gracie? The catechism question? Christ undertook to keep the whole law for His people and suffer the penalty due to their sins. What can the accuser do with that? What charge can he bring? You see that? Now, I want you to read this and we'll be done, really. Thank you for your patience. They told me to. <laughs> Reread now Romans 8 in light of this. It is glorious. What then shall we say to these things? If God fights for us, if God is for us, who can withstand us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us to keep the whole law, and to bear the punishment due to our sins, that's what for us is talking about, how will He not also with Him in that graciously give us ensure all things? Who can whisper in God's ear concerning God's wheat now? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who, the judge of all the earth, that declares them to be righteous because of the substitutionary work of Christ on their behalf. Right? Guys, this is the gospel. This ain't some ethereal, otherworldly thing we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel. Look, who's to condemn who's to accuse who's to who's to cause condemnation for those for whom Christ lived and died no one right why because Christ Jesus is the one who died in their place yeah I'm a sinner Luther says so what right Christ died for me what of it I think he said not to make light of sin but it's to say when when the when the Tempter tempts to despair. says, yes, you've got that right, but you don't got God's ear. Understand, that's what's happening here. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one that died. More than that, who was raised. That's victory. That's proof of His righteousness. That's vindication of His righteousness. And who, present tense, is at the right hand of God, who, present tense, is indeed interceding for us. Now who's got God's ear? The one who bled and died for us. Right? The one who laid down His life for us. The one who left heaven to come and seek us out. The one to whom it was said, ask of me and I'll make the wheat of the nations your harvest, your inheritance. He's at the right hand of God. Satan is dispelled. Isn't that glorious? conclude right here who then if all that's true will separate us from the love of Christ amen let's pray father we praise you Who are we that such great blessings would be bestowed upon us? 
Who are we that you would pluck us out of our iniquity and transfer us into the kingdom of your dear Son? God, even now it's easy for us to pray that as though it were just a platitude. Sorry for that. But we are reminded of your great grace and mercy. More than that, this morning we're reminded of your great power, your great wisdom, the glories that we see of you, and the work that Christ has accomplished and continues to accomplish through his intercession and his people. God, please. Help us to look away from any strength in our flesh. To look away from any hope in our own righteousness, our own goodness. Help us to look in faith to Christ. Lord, empower us. Birth and grow within us an unconquerable zeal as ill to serve you, to serve our Lord Christ with all our might. Help us to be faithful in our part of gathering the nations to him. Be glorified in this earth, Lord. We thank you that you are. In Jesus' name. Amen.